Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Coping with Creativity, a podcast for creators about coping with that unrelenting need to create, our mental health, self-imposed pressures, actually succeeding, and everything in between. My name is Jesse Lawson, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about planning and failing. Speaking of failing, before I begin, you'll probably notice that this podcast sounds different than the last podcast, which sounded different from the last podcast and different from the one before that. I am still massaging out which microphone I like the best and which setup I like the best, and because I can never make up my mind, I am probably just going to continue to shuffle through my shotgun mic, my NT-USB, and then a couple other ones, because which microphone I want to use kind of depends on how I'm feeling that day. Anyway, back to planning and failing. Uh, I was originally going to approach this from the perspective of a musician, a game programmer, and a writer, but decided instead to just focus on being a writer. All the types of art that I create come from the same central element inside me, this drive to create. And so the tools I use for one definitely translate over to other forms of art. So let's talk about planning for writing. You'll often hear that there are two types of writers, people who plan and people who write by the seat of their pants, plotters and pantsers, you'll hear. I don't think that anyone fits into either of these groups completely. Absolutism rarely has a place in creating. But I do think that people tend to push themselves inadvertently toward these opposing poles. On the plotting side, we can see a perfectly plotted out story, scene by scene, turn by turn. All of the processes of discovery and creativity are finished, and what's left is just to type the story up. The grunt work. Done. On the pantsing side, we have no outline, just the raw creative energy that we bring to the keyboard or pad of paper every time we decide to write. Now, I really don't know of any successful writer who rigidly adheres to one or the other. And by successful, I mean someone who's finished something and published it. Instead, most people who have finished and published at least one book have a little bit of both in their toolbox, including myself. If writing is walking, I think rigid plotting would be like walking 10 miles on a treadmill and rigid pantsing would be walking 10 miles up a mountain in a straight line without caring about whether you veer off the trail or not. I think there's a happy medium somewhere in between. We need to appreciate that writing is about the journey and not the destination per se. I've talked before about how the grind must drive you, and if it doesn't, if getting words on paper doesn't drive you even when you're completely in a slump, then you need to get out while you're still sane. When we embark on the hike up the mountain toward our book, or novel, or project, or whatever other creation we're creating, we should have a general idea of a few things so that we can have the highest likelihood of completing something of a higher-than-average quality. First, we should have a general idea of where we are going. We might not know every twist and turn in the plot or the arguments that we're laying out, but we do have an idea of the overall story or theme that the reader will arrive at toward the end of the book or toward the end of the screenplay, or even after stepping away from your painting or sculpture. In my novel Burrow, for example, I knew the protagonists were going to prevail in the end, and I knew it wasn't going to be an ultimate tragedy, and I knew how they were going to do it. But I didn't necessarily know all the things that were going to lead up to it, and I certainly didn't anticipate all the twists and turns that I added into the novel as I was creating it. I think this is okay because it gives us some signposts to follow and a general trail to follow, but it doesn't completely strip us of our ability to creatively veer off the path and discover new ideas or new trails or new sites 
along the way. The second thing to keep in mind is we shouldn't start too soon. How many times have you had a great idea for something, started working on it, and then once the fire was out, you realized that, well, that's all you have for it. I have a dozen stories that I've started and only gotten a couple pages or so into because I started them too soon. I started these stories before I had a general idea of where I was going. Without a destination in mind, your journey is going to be less about progressing towards something and more about just momentum toward nothing. Stories must progress toward something. Every story has gravity, and if everything is just floating around, not hurling toward the ground, you don't have a story, you just have a series of events. Third, we shouldn't start too late. A screenwriter friend of mine is notorious for using index cards like crazy. He has one index card per page of his screenplay, usually 120 to start, and then for each of those cards, associated cards for each major element of the page. Then, he has another card that wraps up the first cards into a series of scenes, and then another set of cards for the story arcs. It is nuts! But he's super meticulous and almost OCD about how everything connects and feeds into each other. Now, while all this, I'm sure, is great for ironing out a very complex storyline, and his storylines are very complex, his problem isn't in his organization system, but rather that he spends so much time trying to be in control that he never actually sits down to write the thing. If planning is preventing you from getting writing done, you're probably over-planning. At some point, you have to stop, put the index cards away, or put your notes away, and just start writing. The fourth thing is that we should set realistic goals. So many articles online are going to tell you to write every single day, and that you're not a writer if you aren't writing every single day. I absolutely loathe when I read an article that tells people that they're not a writer if they don't do X, Y, and Z. If you write, you are a writer. Some people are going to seem superhuman. They write a thousand words every morning when they wake up before they have coffee. And then some people will write a thousand more words every night before they go to bed. As for me, some days I can barely muster four sentences, let alone a set amount of words per day. I have never understood people who can set and meet daily goals like that. I have always felt like if I force myself to write, the only thing that will come out of it is garbage. And frankly, I think a lot of people feel this way. And I'm here to tell you that that is okay. We need to set realistic goals that aren't just about writing, but that are about ourselves. Only we know the intricacies, the handicaps, the pluses, the minuses, and the strengths and weaknesses inside us. Our goals should be highly individual, not from some BuzzFeed article about the top 10 most productive habits of highly productive writers. It's ridiculous. Our goals need to be about ourselves, which means looking online for tips on how to set goals is only going to force us into a model that works for someone else. Find a way to define productivity for yourself and then set small, attainable, and realistic goals for yourself. The fifth thing is that we should get comfortable, not just familiar, but comfortable 
with failure. We're not just going to fail to meet our own goals. Sometimes we're going to fail to meet the goals of others. If you're entering a competition, I guarantee at some point you're going to fail to meet the deadline. If you're trying to finish a book by the end of the month, I guarantee you're going to fail at something. You are most definitely going to write something that you really, really like and then have someone rip it apart because it's not clearly written, your characters are cardboard, your story is garbage and uninteresting, and your writing is awful. It's going to happen. That's what failing is. You fail over and over and over again. What matters in this world is not whether we fail or not because it's inevitable. It's how we compose ourselves and continue on after we recognize that we have failed. Failure is inevitable, and failure is good. Failure is inevitable, but strength is a choice. We must have the courage to critically look at ourselves and come to terms with our shortcomings, but at the same time, we have to learn to be confident in what we are creating when we know that it is something good. Failure is learning, and learning from something that isn't failure isn't learning. Failure is learning with an experiential component, and nothing is going to drive home a lesson like an experiential component. We have to feel it. We have to experience it. We have to publish something that has typos and then have people call you out for being a bad writer because you publish something with typos. That way, next time, you take a greater critical eye towards your publications. Now, if you've listened to any of my other podcasts, you know I'm directly talking about myself. My first book had an enormous amount of typos when I, when I put it out there. My first book was self-published. I was my own editor. And it wasn't until I surrendered some of that control and brought in somebody else to help clean it up that I realized it's not that I'm a bad writer. I'm a good storyteller. It's just that I can't always find the little tiny nooks and crannies where I've made a mistake, where I've failed. It's not a bad thing. It's not. Not everyone is going to like what we write, and that's okay. What's important is that we like what we write. And if we are disappointing ourselves, we are failing. And if we are failing, we better be learning and we better be changing. If you keep doing what you've always done, you're always going to get what you've always got. Having a plan helps to prevent a lot of the mistakes and missteps that precede failing to meet our goals, but that doesn't mean your plan has to be super detailed. Not at all. Have a general idea of where you want your story to go. Have a general idea of where the twists and turns are going to be or could be. Have a general idea of what the major accomplishment and theme of the story is going to be. What feeling is the audience going to feel while reading it? How about when they're done? If you plan for it, if you create a signpost for you to follow, you can make it happen. And finally, we should know when to quit. Does the end state of your project keep changing? Do you keep going down rabbit hole after rabbit hole in what programmers often call scope creep, which is when the scope of your project keeps growing and growing uncontrollably? Are you having a hard time saying no to new ideas? Have you lost sight of your original enthusiasm for the storyline? Is your plan constantly shifting to the point where you are constantly having to rewrite? 
then it might be time to quit. Maybe not abandon the project entirely, but definitely give this one some time to cool off. Not every project is ready to be worked on all the time. Sometimes we have a good idea that just needs to simmer for a while so we can work on something smaller. You know, in the last episode, I talked about distractions, and I talked about how I will use the crockpot analogy to convince myself that my distractions are actually just me being productive. One thing I only glossed over in that last podcast was sometimes our work does need to simmer in the crockpot. Sometimes we need to just close the folder, put the work in a drawer or on a shelf somewhere, and just let it sit for a while. For me, that while is, I would say, about six months. I know that sounds like a lot, but seriously, I will work on a book for a solid couple weeks, get a whole bunch of pages written, and then I need to just close it and not think about it until I can't remember any of it. When I can approach it with a fresh new set of eyes, that's when the rewrites become productive. If we work toward a series of tiny goals, we might be able to build those successes up into a final, big project, one that we successfully finish. But if we don't have those tiny goals, if we jumped in too soon before we realized whether this project had an achievable, attainable end state, or if we entered in too late after we tried to control for every possible twist and turn and and up and down that could have come up, it might be time to quit. Work on something else for a little bit. It's okay. Just because you've spent a lot of time on something doesn't mean that time wasn't wasted. Don't cling to a mistake just because you spent a lot of time making it. Quit. Get rid of that project and start working on something else. You are a serial creator. Your creativity drives everything you do. Sit down. Get yourself a blank piece of paper and create. You can do it. So is a plan something that is a step-by-step solution to how we're going to get to where we want to go? Not a good one, no. I used to tell my Marines that a plan is just a list of things that won't happen, but that planning is ultimately important. It's that old saying that if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. You should definitely have some expectations of what you want out of your creation, especially when it comes to what you will and ultimately will not allow it to become. The enemy of done is maybe this too. We will never complete our work if we keep expanding it, changing it, adding to it. With a clear destination in sight, it's easier for us to stop when it's time to stop and move on to something else when we've satisfied the shape of what we wanted our story to become. On the other hand, with a clear idea of where we are going, we will have a better idea of what we need before we can begin. We don't want to start too late, and we don't want to start too soon. But we do need to start, and we do need to finish, and we do need to get our work out there for other people to experience. So make a list of what you want your project to accomplish. Set realistic milestones that are small, measurable, and easily attainable. Recognize when it's time to murder your project and give life to a new one. And for the love of everything in this universe, never stop 
creating. All right. Now, if there's one universal constant in this universe, it's change. And this podcast is changing a bit right now. We're still going to do a three-page read of a fan-submitted script, but this time I'm just calling it three pages of a screenplay. I know, my creativity knows no bounds. I want to move away from the rigidity of the immediate question format that I did before to offer a more well-rounded critique. Still grounded on positivity, but offering a more whole package. This week, we're reading three pages from a screenplay called Call Center by Bob Henderson in California. Interior, call center, day. A vast open call center floor stretches out like an endless sea of cubicles and desks. The busy, hurried sound of phones ringing in customer service agents fills the air. In one cubicle lazily sits Kyle, who looks like a balding, chubby Clark Kent. Kyle has one arm on his desk, resting the side of his head on his hand as he tries to stay awake. Close angle on his phone, a red light blinks rapidly as he hears a beep sound through his headset. Kyle, thank you for calling CableX Customer Service. This is Kyle. How can I assist you? A shrill but unintelligible voice explodes through his headset. Kyle quickly pulls the headset away from his ear. Kyle, yes, no, I understand, and I'm here to help. What's your... Okay... What's your customer ID number? The shrill voice continues berating him. Kyle makes a dirty face. What a terrible start to a Monday. The voice continues yelling. It sounds like a pissed off teacher from Charlie Brown. Kyle, okay, okay, I'm really sorry to hear that. Please give me one second while I pull up your account. As Kyle types away, Peter, 30s, his supervisor, listens in on his call. Peter looks straight out of Revenge of the Nerds with his pocket protector, horn-rimmed glasses, and pedo stash. Kyle, okay, I'm sorry, yeah, thanks for calling. Kyle pushes a button on his phone, takes off his headset, and gets up. He walks down the long aisle of cubicles as Peter glares at him. Peter, hey Kyle. Kyle looks at him with a reserved indignation. Peter, Kyle, what happened on that last call? Kyle, what do you mean? Peter, you didn't tell the customer about our premium cable package. Kyle, sorry, I, I didn't know where to squeeze that one in between all the yelling and berating. Peter, doesn't matter how upset the customer is, you always, always have to suggest better alternatives. Kyle, you mean upsell. Peter takes Kyle by the arm and moves him away from the cubicle. Peter, we don't use that word. Kyle, well, that's what it is, isn't it? Peter, Kyle, I'm afraid we're going to have to resolve this matter in the customer guidance class I teach. Meet me tomorrow at 11 in conference room B. Kyle, what? Peter, it's just a short two-hour class. I'll see you then. Peter walks away. Interior break room, continuous. As Kyle enters the break room and pours himself a cup of cheap coffee, he looks up and sees a gorgeous Indian-American woman named Mindy. She's in her 20s, dressed in a business casual skirt and blouse. Mindy puts a small Tupperware container in the fridge as Kyle tries not to stare. She closes the fridge and sees Kyle and smiles at him before leaving the room. Back at the call center, Kyle's desk moments later. Kyle sits down at his desk and lets out an exasperated sigh as he stares at his phone and sees all the lights on it blinking. He looks up at the queue monitor on the wall. There's hundreds of calls waiting to be picked up. Kyle picks up his headset, adjusts it, and slowly reaches his arm out toward the phone. He presses a button. Kyle, thanks for calling CableX. This is Kyle. How can I help you? Sorry? Oh, sorry. I, I understand. What is your customer ID number? Kyle's voice fades off in the distance, loud ether of phones ringing off the hook and the voices of other customer service agents. As the large, open floor of cubicles grows further and further away from us, the people become smaller and smaller, the busy sounds fade and become more muffled as we smash cut to black. 
Now we're at the Laugh Street Comedy Club. Night. Kyle stands stage right as he anxiously waits for a comedian on stage to finish his set. The comedian has the audience in the palm of his hand as they laugh and chuckle at every word he says. So, my first impression of this is that there is a lot of potential here, and I'm guessing that there is a lot more pages to be had as well. The setup of the beaten down and exhausted protagonist trope existing inside this Bill Lumberg-esque nightmare that is the corporate world so smartly conveyed in office space is refreshed with the added bonus of the protagonist here, whose name is Kyle, working in a call center, which, according to my sources, is its own circle of hell. Thematically, I like that Bob uses language that makes the protagonist disappear into this world that has swallowed him and everyone else completely up. He writes, a vast open call center floor stretches out like an endless sea. However, I was sort of pulled out of this when I got to, what a terrible start to a Monday. For me, I wonder if, while objectively a bad start to a Monday, this is just expected for our protagonist, and would better convey the lostness of his sense of self in the corporate world by indicating that. The exchange between Peter and Kyle threw me off a little bit when Kyle asks, you mean upsell? Now, I've worked in sales, and I don't know anyone who would actually talk like that. I do know people who hate upselling, including myself, and they would say something like, I can't upsell to an irate customer, or, you know, something similar. I do like that Peter pulls him to the side and says, we don't use that word. Nothing will set in stone that blemished, bureaucratic boobery of anti-corporate fiction like a boss who tries to control thought by rewording and rephrasing facts so that they're easier to stomach. Another thing I think will have a huge payoff is the customer guidance class that Peter forces Kyle to attend. Now, in the three pages, we obviously don't get to see it, but I'm envisioning a Michael Scott-esque tirade of corporate brainwashing and call-and-return-style teaching with Peter having his class repeat like drones the marching orders of a successful sales call. I didn't quite understand the purpose of the breakroom scene with Mindy. As with most injections of pretty women... This scene starts with a description of the woman's appearance and then ends without any purpose for her existence other than to be some challenge or circumstance for the protagonist to experience, and even then it's only hinted at that. If Mindy is supposed to represent some trophy for Kyle to pursue, which, though very tropey, doesn't seem too far outside of what we might come to expect, it might help to set that up with Mindy scoffing as Kyle tries to say hello to her or something similar to that. That, of course, is super tropey too, but we don't have a lot to work with creatively in this scene. What is Mindy supposed to represent for Kyle here? Is she someone that will have a purpose outside of a visual attraction? What's her point in the story? What is the point in describing her as gorgeous, and what would removing that, her visual descriptions, do to the story? I always like to ask people, if you remove the description of your female characters, would your story stay the same? Moving on, the smash cut is a good example of proper execution. Here we have Kyle's voice fading out and blending into a Borg-like collective of corporate drones, and then wham, we're at the comedy club scene. These three pages work well because we're left wanting more. I want to know what the heck happens here. Why is he at the comedy club? How is this going to fit with his corporate job? And what is the force that propels the story forward here? Even though we haven't quite gotten to where what some would call the inciting incident is, and I hate using those jargon words, by the way, Bob's writing has momentum in each page, maybe minus the scene with Mindy, gives us a sense of movement forward. It keeps us wanting to turn the page and keep finding out more. Kyle is set up as someone 
who has been on his last thread for so long that he's just grown used to it. We all have been there at some point in our lives. We get hit on the back so much and so often that you just start turning in hopes that it eventually gets that sore muscle we have. Because if we're going to get punched over and over and over and over, we might as well try to get something out of it. Something tells me Kyle will be propelled quite unexpectedly into a situation that flips a script for him, but continues to perpetuate a world that he cannot control, but rather merely participates in. And that wraps up this episode. I appreciate you taking the time to listen, as always, and I hope you found it useful. The full transcript of this episode and all the other episodes are available online at copingwithcreativity.com, along with links to my Patreon page where you can support this podcast and all of my work. Also, my Patreon page has a new intro video that's quick, fun, and to the point, so check it out. And if you want me to keep producing podcasts like this one, please pledge a dollar or more each month, and I'll give you behind-the-scenes access to the production of Coping with Creativity, my other project, Blank Page, my novel, Evolved, my other novel, Kane, and any other projects that I'm working on, including the idle games that I'm writing. Thanks for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>